Women have played a significant role in our society and culture through time. So let's take a look at the history from the women's side. I'm your host, Brittany, and welcome to Her Story Sessions. So last week we talked about women pirates and how the call to a life of adventure was so appealing to some. But how about Victorian women that wanted adventure of a, well, less illegal sort? During this era, we tend to think of quote-unquote respectable women as staying at home, being good wives and mothers, and putting their families first. Women didn't go off and travel on adventures, not without a male chaperone at least. Except that plenty did. Some did it for the adventure, some did it for academic studies or missionary work, many did it to escape European gender oppression. One way in which this manifested was in scholarly and scientific writing. Women were not taken seriously, especially for women who did research and collected data. So, they traveled and researched outside of Europe. Many found India, which was a British colony at the time, a good place to go. There, white women would be permitted into harems and zananas for study, somewhere men were not allowed for any purpose. These were the inner apartments of Muslim or Hindu homes that were reserved for the women of the household. This gave women from abroad a chance to gain expertise where men could not. Their race played a part in their empowerment when abroad, and when it came to the way they thought of and wrote about the native women, they weren't really much better than the men at home. White women travelers were hailed for their advancements of feminism, even though this was not their intent for most of them. The powers they had abroad did make them re-examine their own positions in Europe, where that was lost due to gender, but few were sympathetic towards the oppression of natives of India due to their race. Some tended to view the natives as merely objects of study, because by doing so, they could raise themselves to the status of white male in scholarly writing and literature, and female European researchers tended to be critical of the land and the people around them. Their writings tend to have plenty of exaggeration, especially about the violent tendencies of the natives. There was the colonial belief that these cultures were inferior to theirs and that the people needed to be taught the European ways in order to advance themselves. There were those that related to the native people because they were objectified for their gender back home. This relation of marginalization allowed feminist travelers to advance the status of European women by showing gender hierarchy in another context, although this didn't exactly quite equate to sympathizing to the indigenous people. Mary Kingsley is one woman who did sympathize with them and advocated for anti-colonial causes, but we'll come back to her later. The first woman we're going to talk about is Lady Hester Stanhope, a British aristocrat, adventurer, antiquarian, and one of the most famous travelers of her age. She was born in 1776 into a privileged family in Britain and was confident and intelligent young lady. Her mother died when she was only four. She grew up in the family home until she was 24 when she went to live with her grandmother. Then, in 1802, she left to travel in continental Europe. Her grandmother died while she was away, and upon returning to England in 1803, she took up the position of social hostess for her uncle William Pitt the Younger, who was the prime minister at the time. She did this for two and a half years, enjoying a hectic, busy life, often traveling and entertaining guests. She preferred the company of men, who were more receptive to her forthright opinions and interests than women tended to be. When her uncle died in 1806, she lost the influence and social limelight she had been used to, although he had arranged a pension for her so that she could live comfortably since she had no other income. 
For a while, she lived in London and developed a close relationship with General Sir John Moore until he was killed in battle in 1809. His bloodstained glove was returned to her, which she kept for the rest of her life. Her half-brother Charles was also killed in the same battle. With these losses and her desire for adventure, she finally left England in 1810 with Dr. Charles Mayron as a companion. She never returned, traveling the rest of her life. They met another Englishman, Michael Bruce, and the three of them traveled together for two years. They went to Malta, Greece, surviving a shipwreck off the coast of Rhodes there, and then to Constantinople, Egypt, and through the Ottoman-controlled areas of the Middle East. She started a love affair with Michael during their travels, something that was considered a scandal back home, and was gossiped about. The fact that she was traveling alone with men was something that was frowned upon, and usually meant exclusion from polite society. After the shipwreck, they all needed new clothes, and being in the Ottoman world, women were covered and wore veils, but this is something that Lady Hester refused to do. So, she wore a rather flamboyant style of men's clothes, pantaloons, a waistcoat, and a turban. Instead of offending local people, she rather impressed them, something her male companions did not expect. She even met several rulers in the Middle East dressed this way. She made a life for herself in the Ottoman world, adopting to their dress in many ways of their life. She sought out their rulers, bringing them gifts and treating them with respect and receiving it in return. She befriended the Druze people, a religious sect from what is now Lebanon, and Hassana Bedouin, who helped her visit Damascus in Syria. There, she made a dramatic entrance on horseback, and Bedouin escorted her to the ancient city of Palmyra, where Queen Zenobia ruled. Lady Hester's entrance was theatrically orchestrated, and she was hailed as a queen. She organized three attempts to locate gold in 1815, one in ancient Ashkelon. Today, some see this as pioneering in archaeology, and others see it as treasure hunts for a political advantage in the region. Lady Hester increasingly spent beyond her means, accumulating a large amount of debt. From 1822 and into the 1830s, while warring factions fought, she helped those fleeing from warfare and was sympathetic to the Druze. The town of Joan, where she was living, was seen as a sanctuary and attracted the attention of Mehmet Ali, the Ottoman Pasha of Egypt, who saw Lady Hester's actions as favoring his enemies. Beset by debt and stress, Lady Hester became erratic, increasingly reclusive, and even violent towards her servants. Mehmet Ali couldn't take drastic action against her, thanks to her reputation amongst the Druze and her political connections back in Britain, so he used diplomatic channels to convince the British government to force her to pay her loans. He eventually succeeded and her pension was diverted to pay them. With little money, her influence waned and her servants left. She died alone and broke in her home on the slopes of Mount Lebanon in 1839. Her life was romanticized by Dr. Marion's memoirs published in the 1840s. She was willful and overbearing, but also daring, smart, charismatic, and benevolent. She dismissed the societal conventions of the time and what was expected of her and those of her gender, and led in an independent life outside of societal norms. While Lady Hester's life was nearing its end, another Englishwoman was growing up in Yorkshire that would end up making several remarkable journeys. Isabella Bird was born in 1831. Her father was an Anglican clergyman, and her mother was the daughter of a clergyman, and they moved around a lot while she was growing up. During her childhood, she suffered many ailments and was recommended an open-air life by the doctor. 
She learned to ride very young and later to row. Her only education came from her parents, but her father was a keen botanist and taught her what he knew, and her mother taught her an eclectic mixture of subjects. She also became an avid reader. She was a very bright child and was extremely curious about the world outside her evangelical upbringing. She had to have a surgery to remove a tumor from her spine in 1850. This was only successful partially, and she suffered from insomnia and depression. Her doctor recommended she travel, and so in 1854, when she was about 23, her father gave her 100 pounds and told her she was free to go wherever she wanted and to stay away as long as it lasted. She traveled to North America, staying for several months in eastern Canada and the United States. She wrote descriptive letters to her sister back home while she was there and used these as a basic for her first book, English Woman in America. Her father died in 1858, and she moved along with her mother and sister to Edinburgh in Scotland, which was her home for the rest of her life. She took several short trips in the years following, including three to North America and one to the Mediterranean, but she had a turning point in her life when she went to Hawaii in 1872. She originally was taking a ship from San Francisco to New Zealand, but she got off there and decided to stay for six months. While in Hawaii, she learned how to ride a horse astride, which ended the backaches she had suffered from riding side saddle, and climbed Hawaii's volcanic peaks. She later wrote about, quote, visiting remote regions which are known to even few of the residents, living among the natives, and otherwise seeing Hawaiian life in all its phases. She published Six Months in the Sandwich Islands about her time there in 1875. From Hawaii, she went to the U.S. West Coast and traveled alone by horse to Lake Tahoe, then to the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. She experienced many adventures during this trip, including riding alone through a blizzard with her eyes frozen shut and being snowed in for two months in a cabin with two young men and becoming acquainted with Jim Nugent, a one-eyed outlaw with affinities for poetry and violence. In a letter home, she described him as a man any woman might love, but no sane woman would marry. These stories were all published in her next book, A Lady's Life in the Rocky Mountains, in 1879. Her next adventurer took her to Japan, where she hired a young Japanese man as her translator. They traveled to the northern part of Hokkaido, the northernmost part of the country. She stayed with the Ainu tribe there, and from this wrote Unbeaten Tracks in Japan, published in 1880. From there, she traveled to Hong Kong, Canton, Saigon, and Singapore, and along the Malayan Peninsula for about five weeks. By the time she returned to England, she was famous for her books about Hawaii and the Rocky Mountains. Shortly after coming home, her sister died of typhoid. She then married Dr. John Bishop in 1881 and was happy in her marriage until he died five years later. After that, she set out for India in 1888 and established the Henrietta Bird Hospital, named for her sister, in Amritsar, and the John Bishop Memorial Hospital, named for her husband, in Srinagar. She then went north to the border on Tibet and had an incident on the way where her horse lost its footing and crossing the river. She ended up with two broken ribs, and unfortunately, the horse drowned. While in northern India, she met up with Major Herbert Sawyer on his way to Persia. The two traveled to Tehran together, crossing through the desert in midwinter, which was a rough trip for them. Leaving the major behind, she then traveled again, alone this time, for six months through northern Iran, Kurdistan, and Turkey. Finally, Isabella returned to England again, where she met with Prime Minister William Gladstone 
and addressed a parliamentary committee on the atrocities that were being committed against the Armenians in the Middle East and speaking out against what was happening there. By this point, she was well-known in England, and in 1890, she became the first woman to be awarded the Honorary Fellowship of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society, and two years later became the first woman allowed in the Royal Geographical Society. She again set out on another adventure in 1894 at 63 years old, this time heading for Yokohama in Japan, then to Korea. She was in Korea for several months before being forced to leave at the outbreak of the Sino-Japanese War. She went to Mukden in Manchuria, photographing Chinese soldiers headed for the front. She then went back into Korea to see the destruction of the war. From Korea, she went to the Yangtze River in China in January of 1896, going up the river by a flat-bottomed boat called a sampan before crossing by land into the province of Sichuan. She was unwelcome here, was attacked by a mob that called her a foreign devil, and trapped her in the top floor of a house and setting it on fire. At the last minute, she was rescued by a detachment of soldiers. At another place, she was stoned and knocked unconscious. She then went to the mountains on the border of Tibet and went home again in 1897. Back home, she was elected the membership of the Royal Photographic Society. She wrote The Yangtze Valley and Beyond, which was published in 1900. She made a shorter trip to Morocco in 1901, traveling with the Berbers, a local ethnic group. She was gifted a black stallion from the Sultan, which was so big she had to use a ladder to mount it. This was Isabella's last trip, passing away at her home in Edinburgh in 1904. She had been planning another trip to China before she passed away. And finally, we come back to Mary Kingsley, who I mentioned earlier, who was a woman with very different, more sympathetic views of Africa compared to what the rest of Europe thought of the continent. She also added quite a bit to the European scientific knowledge of the Africa's wildlife, bringing back unknown species of fish, insects, and even a snake. Her upbringing was extremely sheltered, and she spent the majority of her early life inside the family home in London. She was born just four days after her parents' wedding in 1862. Her father was a wealthy physician for the aristocracy, and her mother had been his cook, and they had a very uneasy marriage. Her father traveled for work extensively and was seldom home, and her mother was ill most of Mary's life, usually keeping to her bedroom. The house's front windows were all bricked up, and her mother insisted on all of the other window shutters staying closed, so the house was constantly dark, and it was always kept quiet for her mother. Mary had one younger brother, but he was sickly as well, so she didn't put much play with him. Because of her gender and social class, she was not formally educated. Her father taught her German, since all medical research was published in that language, and he thought she could be useful to him if she understood the language. Beyond that, she was self-taught, spending most of her time in her father's library, reading scientific books and explorers' memoirs. The library was a haven for her. In A Voyager Out, Catherine Frank quoted Kingsley, who wrote, The whole of my childhood and youth was spent at home, in the house and the garden. The living outside world I saw little of and cared less for. I felt myself out of place and at the few parties I had ever had the chance of going to, and I deservedly was unpopular with my own generation, for I knew nothing of play in such things. The truth was, I had a great amusing world of my own that many other people did not know or care about, that was the books in my father's library. She became fascinated with West Africa, a place deemed dangerous to Europeans. 
When she was 29, her father passed away, and her mother followed just weeks later. Suddenly free from her responsibilities to take care of her sick parents, and with money inherited, she decided to start traveling for herself, rather than living vicariously through the pages of the books she was so fond of. Mary first took a trip to the Canary Islands off the coast of Spain and met ship's captains and traders there who told her about their business and the coastal tribes of West Africa and the stories of cannibals, mangrove swamps, and strange fish and animals. She decided after hearing all that that this is where she would go in West Africa and study tribal religion and law and natural history there. According to John Key and Explorers Extraordinary, she wrote, I had to go to West Africa and I went there, proceeding on the even tenor of my way, doing odd jobs and trying to understand things, pursuing knowledge under difficulties with unbroken devotion. Despite having very little information of the area and warnings of others, she set off to Africa in 1893. Little was known about Africa to the Europeans, and West Africa in particular was called the White Man's Grave. People worried what sort of chance Mary, a woman, would have in a place where even men died. She set out, dressed in proper Victorian women's attire, with a stiff black shirt and blouse, high-button shoes, and a hat. As unsuitable as it was for the hot African climate, this proper outfit became her signature look. In her book, Travels in West Africa, published in 1897, she wrote, You have no right to go about Africa and things you would be ashamed to be seen in at home. She also carried a knife and a revolver, although she never had to use them. She became a traitor, understanding that this would make her more welcome than if she showed up for no obvious reason to them. According to Desmond Wilcox in Ten Who Dared, she wrote, There is something reasonable about trade, especially if you show yourself an intelligent trader who knows the price of things. It enables you to sit as an honored guest at faraway inland village fires. It enables you to become the confidential friend of that ever-powerful factor in all human societies, the old ladies. It enables you to become an associate of the co-fraternity of witch doctors, things that being surrounded with an expedition of armed men must prevent your doing. Traveling for trade also let her travel more cheaply and gave her access to people and places that she otherwise would not have had. Most Europeans at the time viewed Africans as savage and thought they needed to be converted to Christianity and taught to be civilized. Mary, on the other hand, was interested in their local cultures and respected them a highly unusual view. She denounced missionaries for disrespecting the people and destroying their cultures. She spent five months there studying both wildlife and tribal religions. She returned to England with a collection of beetles and exotic fish and felt that she had found her life's calling. She later wrote, I succumbed to the charm of the coast. I saw more than enough during that village to make me recognize that there was any amount of work for me worth doing down there. So I warned the coast that I was coming back again. She stayed with her brother for a short time and then headed back again in 1894, this time to explore the Ogoe River, which ran through Congo's Gabon area. The Ogoe ran through dense forest and was home to several notorious tribes. This included a cannibal tribe called the Fang. Only one European, a man from France, had ever tried to visit there, and he disappeared without a trace. But Mary believed that she had a safer chance if she went as a trader. So she set out, heading upriver, and with several Ajimba tribesmen with her and an interpreter from the Igalwe tribe, Along the way, they came along to another river called Karkalua and a lake called Nikovi, Mary being the first European to ever see them. Later, when others claimed that she had discovered them, she refused to agree with them 
stating that the people who lived there had known about them all the time. When Mary's group finally got to the Fang, they ran down from the village with weapons, intent on attacking. They got lucky when one of the Fang men recognized one of the men on Mary's boat. They had traded with each other before. Mary asked for men to accompany her further into the rainforest, and an agreement was made. Mary and the Fang developed a mutual respect for one another as they traveled together. She wrote, A certain sort of friendship soon arose between the Fang and me. We each recognized that we belonged to the same section of the human race with whom it is better to drink than to fight. In one village, she stayed in the chief's house. She had difficulty sleeping because of a disgusting odor and tracked the source back to a bag hanging from the roof beams. She wrote what she found in the bag. They were a human hand, three big toes, four eyes, two ears, and other portions of the human frame. The hand was fresh, and the others only so-so and shriveled. She joked how touching it was that they should keep bits as mementos. Normally, she would take walks at night, but after finding this, decided it was best not to that night. In another village, one of the men traveling with her got into an argument with a local tribesman, and he tied him up, planning to eat him. Mary intervened with the help of the chief and saved his life. She also agreed to provide medical care to a village if they would teach her about their religion and treated abscesses, infections, open sores, spear wounds, and parasitic diseases for them. She walked or canoed through 70 miles of the jungle, developing relationships with the locals and adding quite a bit of scientific information to what the Europeans knew of the African wildlife. She returned to England in 1895 and ended up staying to care for her brother, although she wished she could travel more. She published Travels in West Africa in 1897, and it became an immediate bestseller, followed by West African Studies in 1899. She also went on lecture tours about life in Africa. Mary volunteered to go to South Africa during the Boer War in 1900 to nurse prisoners, but caught typhoid there and became fatally ill. She died in Simonstown in South Africa three months after arriving, just 37 years old. As she had requested, her body was carried out to sea on a warship, and she was buried at sea. Her tales and opinions of life in Africa helped draw attention to the British imperial agendas abroad and the native customs of African people. After her death, the Fair Commerce Party was formed, pressuring for improved conditions for the natives of British colonies. These women, not content to play house all of their lives, had some exciting adventures, and once again set examples for what women were capable of. I'll have stories of more adventuring women for you next week. That's all for today, and thank you for attending this Her Story session. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Her Story Session, and be sure to click follow for more episodes.